All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all, and whether you're here in person with us as we transition back, and, and those on the live stream, I feel like Larry, Jerry Prevo, or it's like, now it's your chance to give us money. Um, so, uh, my name is Pastor Justin. <laughs> I don't, don't speak off the cuff, Justin. Uh, it's good to be here with you. It's, it's good to be online with you. Uh, we're glad you're here. You know, it, it makes me think of, as we sang that song, it's the, your breath in our lungs. Uh, we think about that a little bit differently these days, don't we? The way we breathe and what's coming out of our mouths and, and, and through this pandemic. And, you know, before we jump into the message, just a, a pastoral word. You know, we, um, this has been a hard season, hard, especially the last couple of weeks, as we've seen the case counts in our area impacting us a lot more when it comes to our jobs and it comes to our school, our, our day-to-day living. And, uh, you know, this whole 2020 has been crazy. And then there's an election coming on Tuesday. There's just a lot going on right now. And so we just want to say um, we are, as, as the leadership at Peninsula Grace, we're learning and, and thumbing through the dark along with the rest of y'all. And that we are um, trusting the Lord to lead us. This has been a difficult season to know how to make decisions, how to navigate things as a body. Uh, we've appreciated the prayers and the support and the encouragement from so many on our body, in our body. And uh, we just want to—I just want to take this to the Lord in prayer before we jump into the message, because there's just a, a long road ahead of unknowns. We don't know where this is going. We don't know the trajectory of this thing. Um, you know, I know that if I was in the one running the borough or the state. I would probably do some things differently. I don't necessarily agree with all of the decisions that are being made. But guess what? Number one, praise the Lord that I'm not your mayor. That would be terrible. And, and, and to have the humility to not think that I know better than them. And uh, to, to say, well, we, yes, we, this is the reality we're living in, right? And so what we're called as believers to do is how can we love the people in our community How can we trust Jesus, be a testimony for Jesus within the system that we're living in? What do we do with what we do have control over and surrender the things that we don't have, we're not in control of over to the Lord? So let's just take this to the Lord in prayer as we, as we, before we dive into the word. Father, we need you. Uh, We need you more than ever. We know that the breath in our lungs is a gift from you. We know that the life we have of Jesus Christ pulsing through us is from you. And so, Father, we need you. We depend on you. And that is always our reality. Nothing has changed during this season. And yet, Lord, we see surfaced in our hearts some of, the, some of the sin issues we need to deal with, some of the fears, some of the anxieties, some from frustrations, impatience, control issues. Lord, you're bringing those to the surface and you're faithful to grow us, to, to show us those things, and then, and then to free us from those things. And Father, we don't know. We, we want to be able to gather in person. We want to be able to uh, see our children in school and, and gathering here for children's ministries. We want to see a vibrant uh, society and, and community in this area. Uh, but Father, we know that, that we don't don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know where this is going, but we're trusting you to, to lead us and guide us for your name's sake. Um, and, and that more than being right, it's about being loving, Lord, that we would consider our neighbors, that we would let our light shine in this testimony, that we would be a window to clearly represent who Jesus Christ is in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, and in the way that we live in this area. So, Father, we just need your wisdom. We need your love. We need your guidance um, through this time. And we just trust you. That, that not that we're going to make it through. Father, your word says we're going to be more than conquerors. 
that King Jesus is coming back. And this is all in process toward that beautiful day when, when the King returns and everything's made right. So Father, that we would pick our heads up and look with confidence to what Jesus is trying to teach us through this time, and that we would be faithful with what you've given us, uh, with what we can control, and we surrender uh, our lives and all the other things uh, into your loving, providential, sovereign, powerful hands. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so we just finished up our series in Matthew, and this is actually a, a perfect time uh, to be kind of pivoting as we regather today, start to do that in a slightly different fashion. Um, it's a perfect Sunday for our new series. Every month we do what we call Mission Month, and Mission Month is where we highlight some of our missionaries, both near and, and far right here in our community, but it's also a chance for us to once a year sort of recalibrate and ask the question, what is the mission? Like, what is it that we're here for? Why are we here? Why do we gather as a church? Why do we go out in, as a church? What are we supposed to be doing? And we ended our series in Matthew last week exactly on this note. This is where Matthew lands his plane, talking about our mission. If you remember his words, he said, he, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority is mine, and therefore, go and do what? Make disciples. That is your calling as believers. And behold, I'm with you always. And how he summarized it was this. We are are living under Jesus's authority. We're being sent out on Jesus's mission, and we are walking with Jesus in his presence as we go out. And so that's why we say as a church, our vision statement, what we're about, everything we do funnels in toward this idea that we are a gospel-centered community that's reproducing disciples of Jesus. That means our mission is to reproduce disciples, more people who are following Jesus, loving Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and we're doing that in a community together that's centered around what? Jesus. Like it's all about Jesus and his good news, his, his gospel. And so our purpose is to make disciples. And whether that's here in Soldatna, and when Mindy's sharing about what she's doing in Safe Families, that's just one way that we disciple. We love people, that we bring them into the family of God and see them grow. And then maybe even it's, it's across, we, we partner with a group called the Persecution Project in Sudan, uh, working with the persecuted church. It's all the same mission, regardless of where it is and exactly what we're doing. And so um, as far as this month, we want to ask this question, what is discipleship? And, and how we're going to say this is, this is what discipleship means. And we're going to, over the course of four different messages, finish this sentence. We're going to say discipleship means, and today we're going to say, number one, it means loving Jesus. The next week we're going to say it means being discipled by Jesus. Number three, it means discipling others in Jesus' name. And then number four, or being discipled by our others, excuse me, and then number four, it's discipling others. And so um, what we want to see today is as we look at what it means to love Jesus. What does that mean to be a disciple who loves Jesus? We're going to be basing our text out of Revelation chapter 2. The verses will be on the screen, but you can be, uh, feel free to follow along. Uh, we have some blanks in your, uh, your bulletin. If you didn't get one, they're out on the green table there in the entryway. Feel free to grab one. So John, in, in the book of Revelation, um, Pastor John is, is writing to a local church just like ours. It's in the church of a town called, a city called Ephesus. And, and Ephesus, the church, the letter to the Ephesians, you see that in your Bibles as well. Um, he's writing to these seven churches. We're going to look at his letter to the church at Ephesus. And really, these are actually, your Bible might have red letters because this is actually Jesus speaking to these churches. John is dictating uh, what Jesus is telling him to say to these seven churches. And so John is going to show them their report card, essentially. And just like any good teacher or pastor, he starts with the positives. So look at verse 2. I know your works, he says, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So what he's saying is, sounds like a pretty solid church, right? Like when you read those first two verses, Pastor John says, I know you guys. You guys have gone through some hard things. You've suffered. Uh, you've had to stand up against some wicked people who, who ta- uh, taught falsely, uh, fakers of the faith who hurt you in deep ways. He also says, I've seen your great works. I've seen your, you, you got vibrant ministries. Like, you got programs for everybody. You've got great children's programs. They probably had cubbies and sparkies running at full tilt, right? And great programs and Bible studies for men and women and first-time homeowners and, and, and Republicans and, and for dog owners. They had, probably had Bible studies for dogs themselves. This awesome church. Like, they had a lot going on there. And then he says, but, but, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first. Now, this can be translated a couple different ways, and and your translation may say it one of these two ways. It could be that you abandoned your first love, or you abandoned the love you had at first. And I think either one can can be in play here. The first one's a priority of love, your first love, your love for God and his, his people, or that, that you, you had this love, it's a prior love, like it was there and now it's gone. And either way, we see that there's a loss of love amongst the people in Ephesus. And you remember Paul's words in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. What does he say? He says, and if I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He says, you can give away all your money. You could even give up your own body. But if it's not done motivated by love, he says it's meaningless. It's meaningless. And this is what John says. You've abandoned your love. You've left your love. And you think about like, just like a, um, like, a, like, a, like a marriage that's gone off the rails, cold and lifeless, unfaithful. And you always ask, where did it all go wrong? What happened? And we know, I mean, Nietzsche said, life is a long obedience in the same direction. You don't just wake up one morning and declare, I am now going to do a 180 and be completely unfaithful to you. This is a series of small steps in the wrong direction. And and this church has done the same thing. And so he says in in a warning, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, and here's the warning, the consequence, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's he saying there? Well, I love the way Warren Wearsby says that the church that loses its love will soon lose its light, no matter how doctrinally sound it may be. You can have, you can say all the right things, right? Have all your theological ducks in a row. But if you're not actually loving the people around you and loving your God, he says that is not the, a testimony of, of, for Jesus. And if there's no love there, there is no light there. That is our call, is to be the beacon on the hill. And we're hiding it under a bushel. In fact, I think John is saying here, a church that doesn't love isn't a church at all. I'm removing my presence. Your light will not be shining. Because what matters at the heart of everything we do is love. And that's why in our, in our series on discipleship, we want to start here. The discipleship means loving Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus means to love him. And in Matthew, we saw, what is the greatest commandment? He said, I sum up God's heart by, by saying, love God and love other people. Love your neighbor. And of course, Jesus is God. And, and it's easy for us to forget that Jesus is a person. He's not just an idea. He's not a set of facts. Jesus is a person himself. 
And, 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 and so we're called to have a relationship with him, with, with the God of the universe himself. What a wonderful truth. And not just any relationship, right? We have, we have lots of relationships in our, in our lives, right? And a lot of them are, are shallow and pretty on the, on the front. Like I have a relationship with my mail carrier. Not a, very, not a very deep one, right? What we're called to here is a oneness. The most intimate relationship in our lives should be Jesus. In fact, that's what he prays in the garden. He says in John 17, he's praying to his father. Here's Jesus praying to his father. The glory you've given me, I have given to them, his disciples. Why? That they may be one. How? Even as we, the father and the son, are one. Think about that. What kind of unity we're called to have as believers. I, Jesus says, in them and you in me. There's this perfect oneness that he says we're to have with Jesus and with one another. So what does this look like? Well, he uses the analogy of the vine and the branches. You think about the way that a, this vine producing fruit, he says, if it's not, not just connected, you're not just putting flowers in a vase. He says, you are actually fused together, and this, this fruit cannot be born. It has, if, if, if the life of, of this branch is not pulsing through this, this vine, then it will not produce any fruit. And it's the same thing with us. If we're not connected to Jesus, there's no love there. There's no life there. Well, when I'm doing a wedding, I'll often use the analogy of cocoa powder and milk. It's this deep, profound thing that just gets people weeping out loud. And um, we say that just like you mix those two together, you can't separate them, right? They become one. They become a new thing. Or you think about a sponge that's, that's saturated with water into its pores. This is the kind of relationship that we're called to with Jesus. And that's why marriage is the supreme earthly picture of our relationship with, with Jesus, the bride, Jesus and his bride. So, you know, my, my relationship with Jill, it's not just a civil union, right? This is not just like on paper, we signed it, right? Y'all were there, right? We're married on paper, to be married on paper, I could tell you all the facts about who Jill is. I could give you this detailed um, outline of all the contractual obligations that we have to one another. Right? It just kind of gives you the warm fuzzies, doesn't it? Um, that we could, I could tell you um, all of, about how we got married, but in the meantime, ignore her as a person. I could, do all, I, could, I could be married on paper without actually spending time with her and laughing with her and crying with her and growing with her and listening to her without the intimacy of relationship. And I think we often do that with Jesus, don't we? That we have an on-paper relationship with Jesus. That I could give you a 13-point outline on why I'm saved and what that looks like. I could tell you a lot about Jesus. I, I, can, I come to church and I sing about Jesus. We can do all of these things. We can even do a lot of good things in the name of Jesus. But do I actually know him? Do I actually have an intimate relationship with the person of Jesus Christ himself? And that's what we're invited into. And that's what we're talking about this month is discipleship. Discipleship with Jesus, it starts with a relationship. And if we don't love him, we will not follow him as disciples. It's a person. It's the most intimate relationship in our lives. So at the outset here, let me ask you, do you love Jesus? How would you respond to that? How, do you love Jesus? And some of us go, I don't even exactly know what that means, what that looks like. We're going to talk about that this morning. Two questions we want to ask. Number one, why do we abandon the love of Jesus? And then number two, how do we get back? How do we get back to that love? So let's first look at why do we abandon our love? Why do we abandon the love we have for Jesus? And I want to look at three different, uh, three different aspects of this abandonment. The first one is that we're distracted. A, we're distracted. So I'm going to rewind the clock to Monday morning in this past week. It's Monday morning, 8 a.m. Here's my desk, right? Sit down at my desk. 
ready to work on my sermon. Here we go. Loving Jesus. Ready to start typing. And you know what happens. That evil little rectangle sitting in front of me, it vibrates. Ooh, I got a text message. Pick it up, look at it. Oh, I respond with a hilarious gif, right? Send. And then while we're here, ooh, I should just see what's on Facebook. I really need to know what everybody had for breakfast. It's really, really important. Um, and then, then it takes a few minutes to get back to the sermon, right? And then what happens? Another, another, another pop-up, another notification. I got an email from a pastor friend. Shows me this really cool video about how to write a sermon. I start reading that, which links me to the website that that came from. So I'm looking at that website. And then there's those little pop-ups that those creepy little people on the internet always know what you're buying. Like, this is actually what you need to get your wife for Christmas. And it's showing me its face. And then, and then that connects me over to it. I'm now watching a hilarious cat video. I'm just on. And before you know it, I've gone an hour sitting at that desk and not wrote anything toward my sermon. And you all are like, why do we tithe at this place? Like, what are you doing with your time? I get it. I get it. You see what I'm getting at. Every moment of our lives, there's a battle for our attention. There's a battle for our attention. They, they say the University of California at, at Irvine did a, did a study that when you get distracted, so an email notification pops up, a text message, whatever it is, and then you look at that thing or respond, that it takes an average, and this is, this is crazy, it takes an average of 23 minutes and 15 seconds to actually get back to what you, to be fully attentive to back what you were originally doing. So you imagine if you had three distractions, that's an hour's worth of not fully attentive work that you just wasted, right? And we think about as an, the average American today, they, they say that we consume 10 hours of media a day. That we, 100,000 words come through our eyeballs or through our ears. And that's 34 gigabytes of information. That would crash a laptop if it all came at once. Now, we're not, I'm not railing against technology at all. What we're talking about here is our attention, and, and what, what's happening is not just that we're being distracted from getting work done. This isn't just about productivity. It's also distracting us from other people, from love. Nicholas Carr, he wrote an article called What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And he talked about these distractions and the way it prevents us from having an attentive mind. He said not only does this prevent us from being able to think in a deeper way, it also prevents us to be able to feel in a deeper way. That much of the deeper emotions that we experience toward one another, and he highlighted empathy and compassion, that, that if we don't have sustained attention towards somebody, that we, we diminish our ability to go there with someone, to love them, to care for them, to really be where they're at in that space. And this happens to us all the time, right? Jill comes home. She wants to tell me about her day. Yeah, what were you saying, honey? Oh, yeah. That's really sad. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Right? So are you listening to me? Or are you? Oh, yeah, I know I'm listening. I'm a great multitasker. Um, we do this all the time right? Our, our attention is divided. And we do the same thing with God. And I'm going to quote John Eldridge a few times here today uh, from his book. I recommend that I'm not, I don't get any, you know, royalties off this, but uh, Get Your Life Back. It's a book that he just came out. It's, it's a wonderful one about talking about how we get back to this focus on our God in, in a crazy world that we live in. And he says it this way, you can't give God your attention when your attention is constantly being targeted and taken captive. And he says, we're actually cooperating with this. We're not even resisting. And so what happens is we're doing the same thing with God, right? Who's got your attention? Is it God? Is it other people? Or is it just this constant news cycle? Is it, is it the, the social media? Is it the dings and whistles and vibrations coming from your phone? Or other things. For some of us, it's not technology. It might be something completely different. In Psalm 119, it says it this way. David says, oh, how I love your law. 
I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. The law was God's word to David. It was the expression of his character and instruction for David's life. And he says, I meditate on it. I I pay attention to it. I'm saturated by it all day long. That's what has my attention. And what oftentimes we're going, even when we're trying to sit down with the Bible or with some time with the Lord, right? Yeah, God, I'm listening. Uh Uh-huh. What were you saying? Like the Ephesians, man, some of these, I mean, we're distracted by good things, right? Like, I mean, ministry, good deeds, family, obligations, like, like these, these can be good things. And Satan is fine with us doing good things as long as we're distracted from Jesus himself. As, as long as we're not loving him and the things that we're doing, and do all the good things you want to do on your own. And, and here's what makes this even more complicated. It's not just that we're distracted against our will. We actually oftentimes prefer the distraction. Why would we prefer distraction? Well, that takes us to the second component here. Not just are are, are we distracted, but we're also distressed. We're distressed. Again, Eldridge says this, the more distracted we are, the less present we are to our soul's various hurts, needs, disappointments, boredom, and fears. Can you relate to one of those things or a couple of those things? And what he's saying is these distractions are kind of like adult mobiles for us. We're just like, ooh, life is fine, right? There's little medication, little things that distract us from what's really going on inside. But here's the problem. These distractions don't make the problem go away, do they? And they certainly don't help you deal with it. In fact, the more hurts and fears that we allow to fester, the less we will give ourselves to our God in love. Let me explain what I mean by that. So my brother and his family, um, their first dog was Junie. And Junie was the best dog ever. Like one of those, more like a human. Like Junie actually hugged you. I don't even know how it's possible with her little dog paw arms, but she actually could hug you. We were talking last night. I think she spoke English or certainly understood it. Here's a picture with her and Ray and uh, equally as cute, her and, and Jeremy. Um, but they, Junie, um, man, she, we all love that dog. I even love the dog and I don't really like dogs. Please don't email me. I'm just kidding. I, I love dogs. Um, but we, one day, tragically, Junie was hit by a car and she was killed. Man, it wrecked the family. It was such a sad loss. Now, they got another dog, but you know what happens? This next dog, no matter who that dog is, that's not Junie. And, and there was a little less of the family's self that was given to that dog. And then the third dog and the fourth dog, less, you know, the more that you experience loss and hurt, the less of yourself you're going to give to that thing. And we do this in our relationships. See, when, when you've experienced suffering in your life or loss or death or pain what does that do to your love for god man psalm 13 david cries out he says how long O lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me that david's distress i said where are you god where are you in my pain and when we go through these traumas we can give ourselves a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less to god as they continue to bowl through our lives Kind of like a tree that gets torn from its root during a hurricane. I mean, suffering can just rip us from a trusting relationship with our God. And for some of us, we've experienced those moments of trauma where it hits us like a freight train. But a lot of times, it's also this slow series of pains and hurts and anxieties and fears that over time cause us to distrust and give ourselves to him less and less and less. And in fact, this is exactly where sin and Satan's lies love to team up and keep us from the love that God has invited us into. Because the last aspect we're going to look at is that we're deceived. We're, we're distracted, we're distressed, and we're deceived. So I was recently at a, a hot cocoa stand from one of my family members, and I asked her if I could take her picture. She looked at me and said, no. Please? 
No. She stiffened up. She turned her back to me hard as a rock, and she would not let me take her picture. She didn't trust me. Like, what am I going to do with this picture, right? And she did, but be, so, and because I don't have her consent, uh, I have her up here. Her face is, you know, is uh, blurred out here. And uh, we'll just call her July for fun, right? Just kind of <laughs> pick a name at random and go, and go with it. So, so here is this hardening toward me. Did not trust me. Did not consent to what I'm asking for from her. A, a, a Hebrews 3 warns us against this hardening of our hearts. It says in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the, will, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. So God wanted to take his people, his children, Israel, into the promised land. A land, he says, of milk and honey and rest and victory. But what do they do? As they're wandering in the wilderness, they're afraid. They they see this in in the desert, this lack of rain, this this lack of food, this lack of water. Then they get to the land and they see the giants and they see the big armies. And what do they do? They go like July and they go, no, I don't trust you. They harden their hearts toward their God in rebellion. They will not give themselves to their God. They don't trust their God. They've been hurt. They've been in slavery. They've been injured in the wilderness. They don't want to continue to follow him, right? Trust is broken. And the the author of Hebrews, he warns us against this hardening. He says in verse 12, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God encourage each other daily why it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception notice he calls it sin's deception so when we go through a hard season what happens satan slithers in there and he lies to us he goes see you're on your own god's not he's not here for you He didn't even help you in that. You can't trust him and he sows these little seeds of mistrust in our hearts It causes us to give less and less of ourselves to our God. We turn our backs toward him and say no. When he invites us into still waters and green pastures to trust him and rest in him, we go no. So why don't we love Jesus? Why don't we love Jesus? To summarize, we we see here that we're distracted by the self-medications in our lives and the busyness, that we're distressed by our hurts and our fears, which leads us to be deceived, to be deceived that God doesn't love us, isn't for us, we can't trust him, and that causes us to not want to love him either. Do you feel that? Is that in your heart today, an aspect of that? So so what do we do about this? Where, Where do we go from here? Well, three things I want us to think about as we answer the second question, how do we get back to loving Jesus? We see the things that have caused us to abandon that love, but how do we get back to that? Well, three things to consider. The first one is to remember. A is remember. Uh, During this last little quarantine that Jill and I had to walk through together, we were going through some pictures that we were transferring from my computer to hers because she wanted to put together this little photo album. And so we were looking back at the beginning of our relationship so long ago, right? I can hardly remember. Um, And we thought about the first time that we FaceTimed uh, and what a beautiful, magical moment that was. Very 21st century love story here. I remember leaving that FaceTime and going over to the piano and just playing love songs for like an hour. It was amazing and disgusting, right? And then we were thinking about the first time we held hands. We don't have a picture of that because our hands were occupied. And, and the first time we said, I love you to one another, we, we were reminiscing about the wedding and the, the time we had together in Hawaii on our honeymoon. The pictures, remembering, it t- that remembering took us back to our first love when we were so young, didn't know what we were doing. We remembered, and that rekindled that love that we have for one another. And this is what Pastor John wants to tell us in, in Revelation 2. In verse 5, his, his advice to the love-cold Ephesians, it starts with this. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. 
Remember where you were. Remember how things were in the beginning. And especially those of us who have walked with Jesus for a little while, he says, remember where you, where, what things were like when you first fell in love with him. And so I was just kind of doing that little exercise of my own. I was remembering 10th grade on, on, a, on a youth conference trip down to Virginia where for the first time in my life, I had this moment with God. I was in this large auditorium with all these teenagers praising Jesus together. And for the first time in my life, I started to, to be pulled into this reality of God and his love for me. And it changed my life forever. That week completely changed the course of my life. And I remembered back to Bible school and I'm learning all these truths about Jesus, about things that, that I'd never really known or sat in before about him. And I had a passionate zeal for him, the love that I had for the lost and a heart to reach the unreached people groups of this world. And it rekindled the love that I, that I had for him, remembering those times, those moments. Another practical suggestion from John Eldridge because maybe for you, maybe loving Jesus is a really abstract concept. Like, what does that even mean? What does it look like for me to love him? Well, one just super practical suggestion that, that Eldridge gives is, is this. He says, start with something you love. Start with something you love. So think about your child's laugh. Or, or maybe it's your pet. Maybe it's your favorite song or band or your favorite team that you like to watch. You love running. Maybe it's the sunset on the mountains. Maybe it's uh, your getaway cabin. Maybe it's your February vacation spot somewhere much warmer. As some of us are already like, that would be good right now. Maybe you love olives. And we'll talk about repentance next. That's, that's cool. We'll get there. Um, maybe it's somebody dear to you, a person in your life. Things that make you go, I love this. And here's what we do. Then we say, so does God. And God made this moment that you love. God made these things that you love. God made these people that you love and gave them to you as a gift. He's creator of all the things that I love. And my heart will respond by opening toward him. See, close friends love the same things, right? And God loves the same things that you do. Unless you love mayonnaise, then he's not on the same page. God's a Miracle Whip guy. I've talked to him. I, I know this. It's just how it is. Deal with it. So James 1 says this about our gifts. He says, every good gift, every good gift. The Greek there for every, it means the same thing in English. Every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It says the good gifts, the things that we love in our lives, they're from God. The good gifts are from the good giver. And so a great way to, to get to that love for God is to start with the things that we love and remember these are from God, that this is his heart for me. The things I love, God loves. And he gave them to me as a gift. This is his heart. We remember. We remember our love for God and the things that he's given us. Then we, the B, we repent. And the next thing Pastor John calls us to, he says repent. And his word repent, it means to change one's mind, to turn. He says you need to think differently than you have been about yourself about your circumstances, about God and his love for you. And this starts with, with confession, to acknowledge to Jesus, I, I have not been loving you. And here's why and, and, and why it's wrong. Confession is clearing the air with our God. And then this is huge. We turn, right? We change. This is huge and practical simply to tell our God to say, I love you. Like to literally say it out loud, right? We do it with each other. Right? I don't just go, well, Jill knows that I love her. Right? I tell her that I love her. That's necessary for her heart and for mine. That we say these words out, to, out loud to God, I love you. And repeat it throughout the day. Say it out loud when you can. Say it quietly in your heart when it would be weird to say that out loud. 
see, love is, love is not a feeling. We hear that word and we think of the gushy, romantic kind of experience that happens to us. When the reality is love is a choice. Love is an action. It's of the will. And so for us to say to God, I love you, and a trust that, that eventually our hearts will follow as he forms them, that it will enter us into an act of loving God, which is the very last thing that, that Pastor John calls us into here is to return, to return. Verse 5, he says it this way, and so repent and do the works you did at first. He says those, those works that you were doing, they were good, but the, the, the problem was you were no longer doing them from a heart of love. So return to those things you were doing, but do them with love. So let's re- revisit those things that cause us to abandon God's love, and how can we return in a good way? So the, first of all, distractions, right? So the distractions we have in our life, how do we deal with those? We need to create some space for God in our lives. We need to create space for attention. So maybe it's something as simple as turning off some of the phone not- notifications that keep buzzing and ringing and dinging at you. Maybe it's even turning off your phone altogether. I tried this last week at 8.30. I just turned the phone off. The rest of the night it wasn't there. And I can't tell you the freedom that there was. I didn't realize how chained I was to that thing every, every minute or two. Maybe it's, maybe it's fasting from social media for a little while. Saying the next week I'm just off of social media or a day each week or you know, whatever that would look like for you. Maybe it's getting outside in the brisk, cool air out there right now. Taking a walk, being with God in nature. Maybe it's riding in the car in silence instead of listening to the podcast. I'm going to pray or I'm just going to be silent. Some of you with kids are like, what's silence? (laughs) What does that even mean? Getting up early, having the spouse take the kids so you can have some time with the Lord. Whatever that would look like. We need to create space. And then in that space, it's not just the space. It's turning our eyes off the distractions and then turning them on to Jesus. For the relationship to grow, there has to be attentive, sustained time together. And what does Hebrews 12 say? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're going to run the race with our eyes fixed on him. We meditate in his presence. And now one of the helpful tools, uh, John Eldridge, again from the book, he talks about this one-minute pause app. Now, we can see how notifications can be good for used for good, not just evil, right? And so what he did is he created this pause app that kind of beeps at you. You can pick a couple times throughout the day when you know it would be a good time to be able to take a pause from the busyness, the craziness. And in this is just like, a, it's a minute long, and there's a minute, the music playing in the background, and he just simply says, Jesus, it's a prayer. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I, I surrender it all. Whatever hurt or fear or burden or, or, or busy worry that you have, and you're just giving, surrendering that over to the Lord. So I love you. I need you. Saturate me with your love, recognizing that you're in that moment in the presence of Jesus. And man, about a month or so, I've been, I've been weaving this into my life, and it has been so reorienting. Some moments when I really need to pause and surrender. Another thing, we, we, we return to our distress. Now, maybe, maybe some of you were hearing about those things that you love in your life, and you're like, right now, it's really hard for me to think about a lot of things that are good, a lot of good gifts that I have right now. It's a crazy hard season. And, and here's the challenge, and I don't say this lightly. We don't just love the good things that God has given us, but we also love God in our suffering. In the midst of of the trials. You go back, it's so helpful to read David in the Psalms and the way that he, he cries out to God, he, he yells at God, he puts words to the things that are blocking the relationship. It's important to name the roadblocks. God, I'm hurt about X and Y. God, I'm angry about Z. To invite him into the space that you're really living, be honest with him. 
invite him into that space and say, I'm going to choose to love you in the midst of this. And don't do it alone. You, you need help. You need people in your lives, especially for some of the deeper cuts. You need pastors, you need counselors, and we all need friends to walk this road with us. And this is where it takes us to our last point here, the deception that we talked about. Remember back in Hebrews, what do we say? But encourage each other daily, the author says, while it is still called the day. Why do we need to encourage each other every day? He tells us, so that none of you is hardened by sin's what? Sin's deception. See, sin deceives us. And by definition, we're deceived. We don't know that we're being deceived, right? Like if I asked you, where are your blind spots? You don't know. That's where they're blind spots. That's why you, you help somebody back up a big truck when they can't see everything. And what we need to do in each other's lives, we need to encourage each other. How often? Daily. Because of how easily sin's deception creeps into our lives. And the whispers of God doesn't love you. He, you can't trust him. Do things your way. It'll be better. And we need to encourage. Listen, we need to preach the gospel to each other every single day. To remind each other, yes, you are a sinner. But Jesus died for you. He forgave that. And he nailed that to the cross. You're no longer, you're no longer in bondage to that. You're free. And, and you can do the things that he's called you to do. We need the encouragement, the gospel-centered community that he's placed us in every single day. I know I need it. So do you have people in your life that will point those blind spots out, that will encourage, give you courage daily? And are you that for other people in your life? How do I love Jesus? Well, one of the most tangible ways to do that is to love other people. To love other people to love his body, to love the people that Jesus loves, the people he's put into your path. And that's everybody. Like I think about this pandemic and the way that people can come down on such different sides or different places in so many of these dynamics. And listen, I don't care if you have differences with that person. You're called to love them. That means to do what's best, to will what's best for them, and to be gentle and kind and patient and caring with everybody without exception. That can be hard. But if we fail to love Jesus and others, here's what's at stake. And we lose our light. We lose our light. What good is a lighthouse with his lights taken away? Our testimony to Jesus, of Jesus to this community and the world around us is gone if we do not love. That's why Jesus tells the Ephesians, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, we can have good teaching. We can have good morals. We can do lots of good works and programs. But the reality is, if, if we have not loved, Jesus says, I'm not in the midst of that. See, our mission is to make disciples. We will only follow Jesus. We'll only surrender our lives and trust and follow him to do whatever he says, to go wherever he says to go, to give our hearts to him if we first love him. It must start with love. You pray with me. Father, your word tells us that we love because you first loved us. Father, we, we, we know and need your initiating love in our lives. As we know what Romans 3 tells us, that there is none who seeks after God, that we've all gone astray, that there is nobody because of the sin in our hearts. We don't even have the ability to love you. 
But Father, you initiated, because you are love and loved us, you sent your Son to this world to die for our sins and to raise us to new life. You paid the penalty for our lack of love, and then you raised us to new lives to give us the ability to love again. Father, that's our hope. That's the hope that we cling to, is that you first loved us, and therefore we can be invited into this loving union with you. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, pray for my friends in this room today, for those that are distracted, that they would discipline themselves to create some space to begin or to continue to love you and to find intimacy, to to really sit and meditate on your word, to hear what's true about who you are and your love and your faithfulness and the good things that you're doing in their lives. Lord, that those who are distressed would cry out to you in honesty and reach out to a friend in need. Those of us that are deceived, that we would, that we would put our, that's all of us, that we'd be putting ourselves in community where we would find people in our lives who love us enough and that we love enough to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. Father, so that we can be the kind of community. You said, Jesus said, the world's going to know that you sent him through the love that we have for one another. And Lord, we, this world desperately needs to know that Jesus came for them. So would we, would our light shine so that people would see our good works and glorify their God? We cannot do it without you. The, the, the vine is abiding in the branch. The cocoa must be one with the milk. We must be saturated by your love. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his loving name that we pray. Amen.